This is a Founding Media Podcast. We're back with Defense Innovation from Tanks to Teleportation. I'm your host, Dan Dillard. In this series, we explore the intersection of technology, business, and national security with the Defense Innovation Unit, part of the U.S. Department of Defense, and key partners in this effort to grow the nation's innovation base. We're joined, as always, by my co-host, Zach Walker, the DIU Texas lead, and our guest today is Dr. Christopher Alberg, founder of Recorded Future. Recorded Future works with clients like the DIU and the Department of Defense collecting cyber threat intelligence. In this episode, we explore just what it looks like for a startup company to partner with a large client such as the U.S. federal government. Let's hear more from Christopher and Zach. Zach, it's good to be with you again. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Christopher Albert. Thank you for being on the show with us. Great to be here. Just call me Christopher. Oh, sure. Thank you. I'm really excited about to talk about your success story as a founder of Recorded Future and your relationship with Defense Innovation Unit. But before we jump into this, I'd love to get some more background on what Recorded Future is and how you came to start the company. Yeah, of course. So Record Future, you know, in, in very short words, it's an intelligence company. We're in the business of, of collecting intelligence and organizing it and providing it to our to our consumers. Um, it comes out of uh, probably last, call it 11 or 12 years of, of working on doing analysis of the web as a or maybe even sort of thinking more broadly about it as the internet, as a sensor. Uh, it probably comes out of work that me and my co-founders have been working on all the way back from 1991 when I met my uh, co-founder when I was taking his AI class in literally 1991. It's sort of crazy. Uh, but over that time, we've been working hard at data analysis. We started one company called Spotfire that did if, uh, many, many different things, but it was in the business of doing data visualization. We did a lot of work in the intelligence and military world. And then um, back in, call it 2009, uh, we figured out the, the idea for Recorded Future and started the company and, and uh, off to the races. Christopher, could you tell us a bit more about what Recorded Future does in the realm of cyber threat intelligence? Yeah, so so out of the gate, we we had sort of figured out that look, the world's information was flowing faster than ever onto the internet or to the web. It didn't take much of brains to figure that out. But what was interesting was that there had been a lot of hard work done to organize that data for or that yeah that information for search, but it hadn't really been put to order, put put in in good uh, position to be analyzed. And we realized that there was just an incredible amount of information there. Um, so that was sort of the funding, founding principle for Recorded Future. Out of the gate, we were got funded uh, by Google and Incutel to, to build this out. And, and uh, so that was pretty cool. Uh, a couple of years later, in 2011, 2012, we started stumbling on this idea that we could actually apply this, this sort of approach to cyber threat intelligence because there was sort of a, a thing that we came to understand that the web or the internet was sort of unique in that it was certainly this place where all this information was flowing to. It was also the place where bad actors were stealing secrets. Uh, and it's also the place where bad actors are leaving trails behind as they're trying to steal secrets. 
So what about if you could actually organize all this information, organize not only the sort of the obvious, but also organize the non-obvious, the trails left behind by bad actors. Now you could use that to either get ahead of bad actors and figure out what they're doing before they're doing it, or, you know, come in and, and try to understand after things happened. And that was sort of a early thought. And, and over the years, that trajectory has, has been a good one. And we've been able to build a pretty significant business there. And it's sort of all built in this idea that I like to call this the Allberg Law of Intelligence. Everything eventually ends up on the internet. I blurted that out, some version of that, 2010, 10, 2011. And, you know, every year it's sort of something new that happens, be it Snowden or Assange or, you know, late, lately here we saw the Maxi Motor thing came, coming out of Europe. You know, just incredible stuff ends up on the Internet and, and a lot of opportunity there. That's really incredible. Congratulations on all that success. It's, it's um, as I was reading this, it's just more and more apparent that it wakes you up. The person that's not thinking about this all the time as far as security it wakes you up to think, yeah, there's always threats all over the world that prey on company, uh, companies and countries. So uh, as I was reading the profile and all the work that you've done, I just was truly amazed. How did you get involved with uh, the DIU, the De uh, Department of Innovation Unit of the Department of Defense? So, look, we've always known that, you know, that, that you know, when you do what we do, intelligence, uh, one of the most sort of interested parties would be military. Uh, you know, that sort of just makes sense, doesn't it? That's the, the the place of the world that sort of thinks most strategically about intelligence. And actually, specifically when it comes to cybersecurity, the, the place that puts the most dollars on intelligence as part of cybersecurity. That's always been true. And now historically, that effort had been by done by sort of analysts writing reports and, and sort of stacks of reports and, and that might be consumed by other humans and hopefully put to work. And we realized pretty early that if you did this really well, you wouldn't really be in the business of report writing, but you'd be more in a business of collecting data and using algorithms to organize that data and get it into consumable format for, yes, sometimes a human, sometimes an algorithm. And so as we were sort of thinking about that, we realized that, that we really could build a business that was sort of a data business out of that. And that's the path we went down, and it worked out pretty well. I have written those reports for the NSA. And so on behalf of everyone that has done that, thank you for making that job easier. You mentioned InQtel, which is well known as the CIA's investment arm. Could you speak a bit more about your work with either the Department of Defense or the federal government before work with DIU? Yeah, no, it's a good point. So, and, and, I, and I, realized, I realized I didn't really follow through the thought on DIU there. So, so I'll use that as, as a way to sort of connect the dots. So obviously, you know, as a startup company dealing with the federal government writ large, any federal government is hard. The U.S. federal government, just because of its sheer size, uh, is is incredibly hard and difficult. It's probably equally hard if you show up in China. We have no intention of showing up in China. But any large government behemoth probably was hard in the Egyptian times 5,000 years ago, but dealing with the federal government of Egypt. So always hard and difficult, you know, big bureaucracies. And the U.S. government is a bureaucracy and it's hard and, it, you know, it, it does very advanced stuff. And then there's things that are not so advanced and, and maybe sometimes it's procurement beha behaviors or procurement apparatuses can be difficult. So when you show up there as a young sort of company, or probably sometimes old, but, you know, young startup and who's trying to say, look, Cool idea. How, how can we de deal with this? We were lucky to stumble on uh, to InQtel. Many years ago, uh, we started working with them at Spotfire 
sometime in 2002, 2003. There is actually connective tissue to back to the recorded future ideas because we did a lot of work there on dealing with the outputs of uh, entity extractors from documents that in that case probably more emerged off a hard drive that you picked up in a cave in Afghanistan with two bullets through it. And you wanted to sort of visualize the data coming off those hard drives. And, you know, that same sort of idea got translated into dealing with the Internet, where you just add, you know, five zeros to the amount of information. But so we worked with Incutel back then. Uh, Incutel and the NSA, actually, was uh, it was the NSA that was sort of the, the the sponsor of that work with Incutel back in 2010, 2009, all the way back. That worked out great. Um, then in 20. 15 or something like that, when just as DIU was, uh, DIUX at the time was stood up, I ran into a couple of those people in Boston. I'm not going to remember the names now off the top of my head, but we sort of interacting and, and sort of slowly started talking with DIUX about how we could approach uh, the federal government and in particular things around cyber command. And, and, you know, so, and what was really nice about it was sort of this, uh, you know, it, sometimes it's sort of very binarily how you work with the federal government. It's like nothing, nothing, nothing. And then eventually it might turn into something five years later. But as the startup, by that time, you know, you're like, wow, this is, you know, just lost on me and I'm I'm on to something else. But we we're able to sort of ongoingly grow uh, our, our, you know, both our engagement as well as our business. And it was just a great path. Really, really good. I was really curious about that as a founder myself, uh, working with the DOD or the federal government is probably not the first thing I had a thought to do. And so before this podcast, my opinion of working with the DOD or federal government was that it was pretty an inclusive organization. So my question is, was this kind of an idea that you had to begin with? I'm going to go work, approach the DOD, or was it just something that happened along the way? Why work with the DOD and not the public sector per se? No. So I, so I think, look, um, so if you think about what Recorded Future is doing, so we do cyber threat intelligence. Why do you do that? You do that because you want to defend networks. Who have the largest networks in the world? It's the DOD. Uh, who is the biggest buyer of information technology in the world? It's the federal government. And it's very likely the DOD as part of the federal government being the largest, you know, uh, procurement shop, the biggest consumer, the and both runs the biggest networks and the, is the biggest consumer. And then if you put yourself on the other side and you just say, look, you're in the business of doing intelligence, what would give you more, the most pride, pride as the most proud uh, as a supplier to that, then, you know, the, the coolest thing you could win would be able to do this for the government who supposedly or presumably runs the most advanced um, intelligence systems and apparatuses. So if we could be a small provider to all of that, that's, you know, a nice feather in the hat or whatever sort of expression you want to use to it. So I think, you know, big customer, big feather in your hat if, you, if you're if you able to do it. And, and it's also a natural consumer. It's an advanced consumer who, if they can figure it out and put it to work in good ways, you can do that anywhere. So I think now... If you were doing some other sort of technology, maybe that wouldn't make as much of a, you know, sort of as natural sense. But but certainly when you're in the business of intelligence, I think that makes a lot of sense. And we've been able to create a great relationship with these people. That was about what and, I was about and, to ask. And that's what sort of, what's your you know, experience been to date? Yeah, no, it's been great. Really, really good. So you've got your starts in the government, which is really interesting because you're also a tremendously successful company. I know recently hit. 100 million a year in annual recurring revenue, which is a tremendous milestone for a software company. 
And I want to make sure that we talk about the commercial side of this because a big sell of working with Defense Innovation Unit is that we don't want to make you a defense contractor. We want to be a small part of what is a large commercial business. And so curious if you could speak a bit more about how you went from InQtel funded working with NSACA in the early days to making a really successful commercial business. And then what brought you back to DOD? Because you chose to come, you chose to come back and we appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's a good, good question. So we, you, so as you outlined, that's where we got started. Then I remember painfully here, if you, and you also remember late 2011, early 2012, there was bad times for the, it was bad times for the, for the economy writ large. It was also things like sequestrations and furloughs. And it was like, I remember I had five words that was basically stacked up about how bad the federal government was doing. There were no budget. It was this like month to month bills out of Congress. And, and so we were like, you know, I'll say it. It was like, oh shit, we better figure out how we take this to commercial world. So we stumbled on some people at, I think it was General Electric at the time, who sort of got, got us onto this idea that, look, we could actually do this in commercial world. We started talking to them and, and then quickly won a set of clients in the commercial world uh, through 2013 that are still customers to this day. Uh, incredible sort of, uh, you know, just sort of a entry level market there i won't use their names here but you know fortune 500 type companies that that just worked out great and incredible loyalty and and pride in in the work that we've done with them over over the years and then you know so so by now by statistics i think uh, governments writ large are probably 30% of our business 25 25 30% uh, some of that is, you know, the sort of government parts that we're talking about now. Some of it is more, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, the, just regular government entities, entities, central banks. We have many central banks, for example, that that are customers around the world. We have many national certs that are, I think we have more than 20 national certs around the world that are clients. So defending networks needs to be done for governments in all kinds of different places. So, so, um, so. But the commercial business, to your point, is our largest business. We sell to telcos, we sell to banks and oil companies and all of these sort of guys. So I think that's sort of part of the strength of what we've done is that our our, our $100 million book of business is sort of nicely spread uh, across many different verticals. Uh, it's primarily in the U.S., but it's also in a bunch of friendly countries around the world. Uh, it's also uh, spread across many companies. So we have no... No, no entity is responsible for more than 5% of our business, which is a very sort of important point as you build a strong business, even if, you know, and I won't use numbers here, but, you know, you can find the numbers around some of our largest sort of contracts. And even at that, nobody's responsible for more than 5% of our business, which is, you know, you, you don't want to be sort of beholden uh, to anybody. You want to build your own strong business. And, and that's Good always been sort of a mantra sure. here. It's like good diversification for sure. Good strategy. Yeah, yeah. And it, in in intelligence, that's important too, because as you do that, you get because otherwise it's easy to sort of if you're only working with defending somebody, one one entity, you're going to get pretty myopic around that. And we get to see, literally get to see whether it's a human seeing, but maybe more importantly, our sensors get to see a lot. And and uh, that's that's the business of intelligence, seeing a lot and pulling that together into smarts. So a you, lot of companies well are afraid that if you work with the government, especially what you did in the agencies and a lot of sensitive stuff, that they won't be able to go commercial. 
And it sounds like not only did you crack that code, you did it very successfully. Could you speak a yeah. bit about how you managed to to, to take something it, that is probably more by more through uh, ignorance and stupidity yeah. and naivety <laughs> than than any smarts I would say. We've always had the sort of both in this company as well as my my last company or or our last companies this sort of the idea that we need to work with many. That's where we get strength. Um, the you know. Certain, you certain, or we certainly had no intention ever to become like a Beltway Bandit or, or you know, the sort of the Lockheed Martins or, or whoever sort of Raytheons or, or you know, not to call them Beltway Bandits. That's that's unfair, but it's sort of the word that word that people like to use. We had no intention of ever becoming anything like that. Um, the I love working, you know, with the U.S. government and making sure that we can, you know, because it gives us a sense of mission, a sense of something bigger where we're trying to help out within something very important. But I like, you know, that, and I think this is part of the DIU point that you guys want us to do this in a way where it's not a special contract with special this, special that. Remove all those words special. I, I always say, look, no government tasks us. You know, we, we, we are an independent company. We build a product that is sort of used by many and the strength comes from many, not by a singular entity tasking us. To that point though, you, you mentioned that, that you didn't want to become a traditional defense contractor. Certainly we need the Raytheons and the Boeings and the Lockheeds to get yeah, us yeah. tanks and F-35s and, and things like that. But I'm curious if you could speak how the work with DIU and particularly what's happened, of course, the long-term contract with Cyber Command, how has that impacted your commercial business? So I think, look, when that contract got announced, which it was obviously a pleasure to see the fact that Cyber Command and DIU wanted it announced because, you know, that sort of blew me away a little bit, to be honest. Uh, so that was cool. And I got a lot of attention. Um, I've never seen any sort of a, uh, announcement of a customer, customer contract ever in my life, you know, and I'm getting to be on the older side. Uh, the, I've never seen anything like that getting attention from around the world. That, you know, Australians, Singaporeans, Brits, all kinds of places where like, and I'm sure it was seen in all kinds of places that maybe not as friendly as those um, that saw that. So that was sort of amazing in itself. Um, it, you know, certainly had a, many of our co commercial customers as well as prospects, prospects being like, wow, you can do this for them. What can you do for us? And, you know, at some level, we try to just answer it very simple. We, we can do the same. It may not be at the same size. But it's again, it's, you know, we're all in it. The good news with network defense is like the Internet. The bad news about the Internet is that it's all connected. And because it's all connected, any part that is vulnerable is going to sort of be a vulnerable part for everybody. That's sort of the downside of the Internet. Uh, if you're an offensive guide, you sort of think of that. That is the good news. But for us as defenders, that's the bad news. Now, on the good news side is that when you're in the business of intelligence, for the benefit of network defense, that's actually the strength as you sort of build out this defense, you know, defensive uh, collective defense network that builds strength, and we can all help by, you know, making this stronger and de and defend the entities that we're trying to defend. Well, I love the diversification mindset that you have about building your company out, but also uh, to the last question, you also had an intent of going and use and having the Department of Defense and the government as one of the uh, customers. But also from what I've read of your work, you're also chairman of a business school and advise a series of startups. And I know that uh, as a startup ourselves and dealing with a lot of startups, one of the questions that always comes up is scaling up. So when you prepare to work for the Department of Defense, I assume you needed to be able to scale quickly. And was this a challenge and how did you overcome that? 
Good question. So, you know, that's true in general. I think, you know, the the particular part with the Department of Defense was just sort of the size of a single client, because, Frank, you know, without giving away, giving away too much, it's just a bigger customer. You know, like uh, you can find big banks and big oil companies or big what have you that have many analysts, but it still will be nothing like what a government will have. And, and, and likewise, in just, again, sheer size of networks and, and so on. So yes, that took some scale up. I think we've sort of, though, and we, you know, you have to have, you know, we have program managers for dealing with the government and those sort of things that maybe doesn't show up as job titles with others. Um, and we've had to build more sort of systematic training programs. And, you know, again, great pride when we can go teach intelligence to you know, analysts in, 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 in these sort of places. But it's come pretty naturally. We haven't had to do anything uh, disproportional or anything funky. We've sort of been, you know, and then I think that's what, it, what we built in here. We, there is not like, you know, we have a lot of people here who come from the government. You know, we're proud of our veterans group at the company and actually not just U.S. veterans, but, you know, British veterans, you know, like a whole set of, um, you know, places from around the world. So we have a lot of people who knows what it means to serve or, or to, to, uh, to, yeah, basically to, to be a good um, uh, partner and, and, and figure out how we do this in a good way. Um, we built some programs that are specific to the government, but we're not doing it in, in majority. 80% of it is, is sort of, again, standard method. And I think that's why it works, as opposed to if we had sort of a special go special government outfit. If we had that, it would just be, then it would not work. Then it would be something different. And a lot of companies do that. They'll have the special services corporation of some sort. And, uh, you know, that that's just, then then it's not as interesting anymore. That's really what we shoot for. We want you to to work with us in a way that you would work with any other Fortune 100 company, right? And, and yeah, we're yeah. glad that that's worked out with yeah, with our yeah. relationship together. And it teaches us also to work, you know, because frankly, we're going to work hard to get some of our commercial guys to that size too. <laughs> so if we can do that, then so so it's all all for the best, all for the, for all for the good. Speaking of the commercial side, could you talk a bit more about some of the problems that you're looking to solve for companies, or that you think perhaps we should be looking at as a nation. I've seen your post about cyber threat actors taking advantage of the current COVID-19 disinformation, right? It's a, it's a really uncertain future. And if you could maybe show us a peek behind the curtain a bit as to what that looks like. So I think, you know, it's a, it's a big question. Uh, the, the, there are obviously tactical things around COVID, which just shows us how, how our, the bad guys are willing to sort of take advantage of anything. You know, that's sort of the, the depressing part. And I think the criminals were the first. They typically are fast and first here. But then now we're seeing governments taking advantage of the same. You could be simplistic about it and say governments are, or, or act, bad actors are happy to use whatever it takes to get somebody to click. It doesn't matter if it's a, a, a hurricane or a, you know, and, and something like COVID or what have you. But maybe there's something more to this here. I think in general, you know, we we founded Recruited Futures sort of on the premise that we live in an uncertain world. We did this coming out of the financial crisis and, you know, 2009, 10, 11, you know, Arab Spring and a whole bunch of things was sort of just fed into the world of uncertainty and, and sort of along with that, what I talked about with the world's information flowing to the web. It feels to me like that uncertainty, unfortunately, have sort of taken 
you know, gone to the next level um, and certainly have scaled up in itself to, to what we talked about before. So, and, and again, um, so then you think about like, how can we battle that? How can we do something about that? And, you know, I love hearing sort of Cyber Command taking much more sort of powerful uh, posture around this about disrupting actors and disrupting the adversary and those sort of things. At the Recorded Future, we can sort of only do our little part. I think what we can do in sort of organizing the information around the bad actors and, and try to, sometimes it's as simple as publish it, but maybe more importantly, sort of have real-time feeds about what the actors are doing and be able to provide those, those to defenders to make it difficult, really just disrupt the work of, of the adversary. That's our mission. And, and uh, the bad guys are not going to let up and they're going to keep doing this for a long time. And it's going to have a big range to it. It's going to range from sort of classic fishing, uh, whatever sort of the tactical, technical sort of level, all the way up to, to your point, disinformation. I think when we look at the dear Russians, they're, they're masterful at this, of, of really connecting everything from sort of a quote unquote, a low level hack all the way over, over, up to creating sort of information uh, you know, we'll just call it information operations and, and really tying all of that together and, and taking advantage of whatever weakness they can do, whether they're hacking computers or hacking heads, they're happy to go at it all. And, and we're going to have to battle back that. And then I think intelligence will play a disproportionate role in doing that. And that's why I'm sort of so optimistic about what we have in front of us here at Recorded Future, even in this uncertain world. And we're going to do our part about battling back at these these bad actors. To further that question, uh, what does the next dec decade look like for Recorded Future? Um, and then also, I'll add a little bit more to that question. How has the work with the DOD um, helped your efforts there? So I think that's sort of the, the point. The, the, so if you think about, first of all, uncertainty, we have another decade of uncertainty in front of us, you know, and it's, it's easy to get caught up in COVID right now. You know, I, that's sort of, I think COVID more as a, COVID is, um, I don't know what to call it. It's its an accelerator of, of a bunch of things that was going to happen anyway. I think China and the U.S. was sort of on a path that is not necessarily very friendly. This will make that, you know, what we're going to see over the next three to six months over an epic blame game, you know, and I'm not going to take sides here of who's right or wrong, but there is going to be an epic blame game going on between the U.S. and China here. Uh, which is going to be very, very interesting, uh, you know, whether it's this sort of China pushing in South China Sea or the U.S. doing X, Y, Z. But all of this stuff will sort of be accelerated now. So so that sort of lays out another 10 years of uncertainty. Um, and and uh, so as we think about that for our business, again, it just means that we're going to have to sort of imp improve our reach. Uh, you know, we've been focused on sort of Russian cyber criminals, as well as the big four, Russia, China, DPRK, and Iran. We're going to sort of build that out and, and, and make sure that we can cover intelligence agencies from around the world. We're going to increase our cyber crime coverage to really cover it all and be pretty ambitious. We want to cover it all. Um, we want to understand intelligence all the way from the bits and the bytes, all the way up to, to information operations, uh, and really being able to sort of connect all of that so that it can be used as a, for a defender. We want to do it in a way that is not just sort of for the consumption of a threat intel professional and not just for their managers. That's sort of being the classic intelligence that it's sort of 
for a threat intel person or a decision maker. But what does that mean for somebody who works? We'll do it by simple steps. Like, first of all, somebody who works in a security operations center. That makes sense. Let's figure that out. Let's figure out what it means for somebody who's managing vulnerabilities and the development cycles of software in large processes, including the DoD. What does it mean for somebody who's defending a brand? Uh, that person have historically been sort of looking out for like is somebody saying bad things about my company. But what does it mean when instead of disinformation campaigns hitting, you know, a government or an election, what does it mean when commercially we'll see disinformation campaigns being used in nasty ways? How do I defend myself against that? How do I detect um, these sort of attacks across a supply chain of 25,000 companies that actually, frankly, lead right back into China? How do I defend against that? There is some pretty epic defensive uh, things that are going to have to be done here, and uh, we're going to try to go at all of that. So it's a pretty, uh, pretty amazing opportunity in front of us. So as much as all the bad news is around us, you call that chapter two in your recent post on the cipher brief, which I recommend everyone read if you haven't already. And you also talked about Albert's Live Intelligence, which you mentioned earlier. But curious to kind of tie it all together. If you could speak a bit more about your your law and how it ties to what you're looking at, <laughs> I don't in know. It gets pretentious, but no, I I think it's just sort of um, um, so you know there's a lot of um, a lot of interesting things going on. I I, I like this idea this that eventually everything ends up on the internet, and you know the, I love challenging people with that. People who traffic in the world of secrets and they're like, yeah, but this will never end up on the internet and give another year it will. Uh, and it, it sort of, it, it doesn't matter. Sometimes the actual document, this thing that the Dutch, uh, whatever published here recently on the, uh, the, the sort of the alternative five I alliance in, in Europe, that was sort of like, I think a lot of people are like, what that on the internet too? You know, it's like the, the, but that's sort of very, very concrete when it's sort of the end product ends up on the internet. There are many, other versions, all the way down to NetFlow sort of thing that that can end up on the internet. NetFlow is on the internet because this is sort of the, as all information is on the internet, it's sort of, it's you can't really take it apart. You might encrypt it. You might do all kinds of different things to take, but so, so it's all there. And that means that the bad guys are going to have amazing ways to, to steal that information, destroy that information, destroy the systems that it runs at. And we've got to really think about what does it mean to defend it. And again, I think this means that intelligence is going to move to the forefront of, of what it means to actually defend it. So that's why we're so so optimistic about that. And, uh, you know, from chapter two point of view, that was sort of mostly something we used as a battle cry internally to say, look, you know, because we built a company to a certain level over the first 10 years. Now we're thinking about the next 10 years and, and uh, there's probably a chapter two and there's probably a chapter three in this. These sort of things never end and, and uh, we'll just stay at it. Uh, one question I asked Zach in our last episode, and I'd love to get your opinion, is... Uh... One piece of advice you'd offer leadership maybe at the DOD wanting to explore working more alongside uh, private sector solutions, but then also flip that and uh, maybe advice for companies that are looking to work with the DOD. Any advice? Yeah, maybe I'll start with the companies. There, it's sort of like you really have to figure out it's no different from selling in general. What does it mean to sell when you sell something? Because Frank. Frankly, that's what you're doing. And you got to figure out how you're meaningful. What's in it for them, for the other party? A lot of entrepreneurs will be like, here's my widget. And the government is not adopting it. Damn government. You know, like, yeah, buddy. You know, that's not really how it works, is it? So, you know, so so 
whether you work with DIU, you work with Incutel, those sort of things, or you work directly with the government, you know, government tends to think in certain ways, you know, government tends to think in very specifically in terms of requirements that we have a requirement for X, Y, Z. Let's figure out who those guys are who have those requirements. They, and they may be very far down in the basement of some building in Northern Virginia, but there are people who have those requirements. And if you don't match those requirements, you're just not going to make progress. So you've got to figure that out and that can be done. And, you know, and it doesn't need to be that sort of fancy place. It can be Department of Social Security or whatever, whatever. But you have to sort of figure out, like, how does government think about that? Now, I think, you know, the the it has been great to see how the U.S. government over, you know, both with InQtel as well as with DIU have sort of realized that it's even if you have figured out that mapping of your widget to that requirement, it still is hard. Because, you know, frankly, budget cycles are three years. It's just like, you know, so so even if the government wants it, you know, the, that entrepreneur or whoever the inventor, he's just not going to have the stamina to stay around for three years. So then these vehicles, um, whether again, InQtel, DIU or other likewise sort of uh, things, you've got to still be very good about figuring out that requirement. I know that I dealt with InQtel much smarter the second time around because I knew exactly how to, and if I'm a little bit, I probably get smacked in the face with this, but how to manipulate the system a little bit, just to make sure that my widget got, my widget got aligned with a requirement. Yeah, you know, that's sort of the work, how the world works. Um, call it manipulate, call it good selling. Uh, and I think that's sort of, but it, but, that doesn't really matter. If you show up at, you know, I don't know, big company X or big company Y, it's sort of the same. Uh, you know, there may be sort of easier ways to do it. But so I'm sure somebody will smack me in the face for saying manipulate. But it, it is sort of what it is. You just got to make sure that you can align that requirement that the government may have and with your widget and then take advantage of these. And I'll, what I as to the outside of what I'll call InQtel and, and, and DIU and the like, they're more sort of vehicles like this, are sort of unfunded, you know, un, um, you know, unallocated budgets that actually can be grabbed in flight. And that's the beauty of it, of course. You know, like you don't have to wait three years. You can, if you're good and if you're smart, you figure out how to align those two with, you know, and then take that requirement, your widget, and align it with that unfunded or un unaligned budget. And, and if you tie those three things together, you can make great things happen. Now, you still have to be smart about it. You know, I've seen many friends do that. And then they sort of don't think about year two and year three when that second year funding is not there and a lot of things that you have to do right. But if you do it right, you can have great impact on a mission and, and it can turn into big dollars. Very cool. Anything for uh, leadership over the DOD as far as working with the public sector? No, I, I, I think, you know, it has become much better through that, you know, I've done this for software stuff, stuff, we'll just call it for 24 years or something. Uh, I think it's become much better uh, because there are these sort of things. I think, you know, understanding the timelines is, you know, really have a deep sense of understanding that, you know, the, a startup cannot think in more than, especially in the early days when, you know, you might have nine months of funding in your in your company. And that's not a funky thing. It's just like what it is, you know, like mm -hmm. this is how it is. <laughs> you, you're not going to have five years of funding. So if somebody tells you and work hard at this and, and in three years, you know, it just doesn't work that way. Um, government tends to think also in terms of sort of butts on seats. They like to make it easy to buy 
people to come in and sit at desks, you know, that's sort of, but if you're building, if you have that widget that really can get sort of uh, multiplication effects from it, then you don't want to sell it at butts on seats. It's like the inverse of what you're doing, whereas there's obviously lots of companies who are good at selling butts on seats. So having that understanding. Uh, so uh, I don't think there's any magic, but understanding that these companies have short sort of timelines and being willing to work with that, I think it's important. And, and uh, yeah. Well, I know Zach and I learned a lot today, and I'm sure a lot of our audiences did as well. Uh, Christopher, thank you so much for connecting the dots for us and all the work that you do to help battle the bad actors. We appreciate you taking the time to chat today. Thank you very much for having me. This was a blast. So thank you. Thanks again to Dr. Christopher Alberg and my co-host, Zach Walker, for joining me today. I feel like we've really gotten a better understanding of what it takes to have a strong private-public partnership. That's it for this installment of Defense Innovation from Tanks to Teleportation. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share it with a friend. And we'll be back soon with more about the Defense Innovation Unit efforts. Defense Innovation from Tanks to Teleportation is created in partnership between the U.S. Department of Defense and Founding Media. To learn more about the Defense Innovation Unit, please visit the links in our show notes. Thanks for listening.